Welcome to the Economics Explored podcast, a frank and fearless exploration of important economic issues. I'm your host, Gene Tunney. I'm a professional economist and former Australian Treasury official. The aim of this show is to help you better understand the big economic issues affecting all our lives. We do this by considering the theory, evidence, and by hearing a wide range of views. I'm delighted that you can join me for this episode. Please check out the show notes for relevant information. Now on to the show. Hello, thanks for tuning into the show. This episode features some recent conversations on ESG and liberty that I've had with my colleague Nicholas Gruen from Lateral Economics. They're from our occasional joint podcast, Policy Provocations, which is available via Nicholas's YouTube channel. In the first part of this episode, we talk about how ESG mandates can be a puppet show and can create confusion among executives and investors. In the second part, we talk about liberty and what Nicholas means by taking liberty seriously and what he thinks is the best way to think about liberty. The title of the YouTube video of the conversation is Liberty, Safety from Tyranny or Doing What You Like. Nicholas is one of the best lateral thinkers in economic policy out there for sure. One of the things I enjoyed about this conversation was the discussion of how his big idea of citizens' juries can be applied in a variety of different applications. This uh, concept of a citizen's jury, which Nicholas didn't invent, but which he's been the biggest advocate of uh, in recent years, it was picked up by Financial Times columnist Martin Wolf in Martin Wolf's latest book, The Crisis of Democratic Capitalism, which quotes Nicholas approvingly. It's great that Nicholas's ideas are getting greater exposure internationally, and I'm very glad to have the occasional podcast chat with him and to feature them here on Economics Explored. Okay, let's get into the episode. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Nicholas Gruen. Hello, Nicholas, and uh, hello, uh, if you're watching, uh, good to be, to be back doing policy provocations. Nicholas, you've recently given a talk to some investors, haven't you, on ESG, and you had some thoughts on this whole concept of ESG and how it's applied. Would you be able to take us through that, please? Sure. So if you listen to one of the most recent episodes of Freakonomics, you will find a an episode which follows the work of two uh, US academics, and they ask the question, uh, does divestment from emissions-intensive firms reduce emissions? Now, you might think it would, but uh, their analysis leads you to believe that it doesn't. Now, I think both you and I, Gene, would have been pretty quick to say that just passing the parcel so that we don't fund that thing but the next capitalist to come along to invest in it will fund it, it doesn't give us as economists a lot of faith that we're achieving very much. It looks, according to their work, that it's worse than that because if you starve in the, to the extent that you're successful at all, you're successful by raising the cost of capital to highly emissions-intensive firms. And emissions-intensive firms are 282 times as emissions-intensive as the bottom quintile, the most emissions-intensive, emit 282 times as much carbon as the top quintile into whom we're going to invest. And if you ask the question, you know, how are we going to get those emissions down if they're making aluminium or steel or something like that, then one of the obvious things we need them to do is we need them to invest in new technology, in inventing it or in applying it. And if we raise the cost of capital to those firms, they won't invest in new technology. And so these authors find that that is in fact the case and that uh, raising the cost of capital to these firms actually increases their emissions. Now, I was giving a talk to the Centre for Institutional Investors, and these are, and, and it was on the subject of ESG. ESG stands for Environment, Social and Governance, a, a kind of an institutionalization of an old uh, concept like the triple bottom line that 
firms should think about their environmental impact, their social impact, and the, and the way they are governed. So these people, are, and, and this is on behalf of super funds. Now, what we know is that about half of investors in super funds say that they do want the super funds to be ethical. Of course, it's easy. that's an easy thing to say in their investments. Uh, and another 25% sort of kind of agree, but they're a little, that they feel a little less strongly. So they feel this as a need. They feel this as something they want to provide their, their members. So they try to ask themselves, well, how could we invest to be simpatico with what most people think is a good idea, which is to lower emissions? And many of them end up in these positions where they run what's called a negative filter. And they say, well, if you're emitting a large amount of money, oh, sorry, a large amount of emissions, uh, we won't invest in you. Now, another problem with that is you end up investing in banks and companies and consultants and companies that aren't necessarily doing great things. They're just doing them with white collars on. So they're caught in a dilemma because one of the most plausible things you can say to your members is we're not investing in high emissions firms. And yet, maybe if we want to lower emissions, that's what we should be doing. And we should be uh, another strategy, for instance, is the strategy of a, of an organization called Engine Number One, which invested in ExxonMobil with a view to Rating basically to turning up at their annual general meeting and replacing board members for ExxonMobil. And they managed to do this really not because of their own shareholding, but because their own quite measly $15 million shareholding in ExxonMobil gave them a stake in then going to talk to BlackRock and some really big institutional investors. And they made a big difference to ExxonMobil, and ExxonMobil is now less of a climate denier than it was and more interested in trying to make money out of the climate transition. Now, the ESG managers, the easiest thing for them to do is to just say, we're not investing in emissions-intensive firms. And that's, in fact, you know, if you think about the divestment campaigns for university endowments and things like investments in university endowments. They're all based on this kind of logic. So I put to them that they're caught in a, a kind of a cascade of, of accountability, if you like, or pretend accountability. They're trying to persuade their members that they're doing the right thing. And what I said to these ESG people is, I think you should get a sample of your members and pay them to, uh, so, so you might have a 100,000 members, you randomly select 25 of them, you pay them to give you a day a month on the weekend to get briefed on this stuff, to talk among themselves and to tell you how they would handle these dilemmas. And that means that you escape from this theatricality, that you escape from this way in which plausible ideas get embraced and then we pretend that they that then you become part of the propaganda effort to tell people that this is all working out well and it's not working out well you're actually papering over the problems so i it's, it's a long explanation but that's right, the, yeah. that's the presentation that's what i was saying that study you mentioned that's fascinating so it could actually be Worse. I mean, I, I was thinking, well, it might not achieve anything because yep. there are going to be other people who will invest in these, That's right. uh, That's you know, right. mining companies, the ones that are mining coal or whatever. And, yep. and look, the reality is if you weren't invested in energy, in commodities, in coal or oil and gas last year, you missed a huge amount That's of gains, right? right? That's and right. so you did your members a disservice, right? So if you're That's a super right. fund, That's yeah. Right. That's right. Yeah, and then, then your members, I guess, are supposed to say, yes, we know it did us a disservice, but that was what we were signing up for when we wanted you to be ethical. And the real kicker is that you weren't being ethical. You yeah. were pretending. So you're talking about uh, funds where 
it's got an explicit investment mandate that they have to... I'm also, yeah, I'm talking about them, but it turns out, and I sort of, this was a bit new to me, you know, this is a much bigger craze than just the ethical investment folks. It's pretty much taken over the world. Now, exactly how they apply their those mandates is is not that they're not applying the mandates as strongly as a fund that markets itself as in, as ethical investment but but most mainstream funds take this ESG business seriously there are standards for reporting on ESG and in a way you know as i thought more about this one of the things my phrase is a bit of an I told you so moment. We the, There are many problems in the world for which we don't have near-perfect policy solutions, but greenhouse isn't one of them. Because greenhouse, we have carbon taxes, we have carbon pricing, and carbon pricing solves these problems because it basically says, if you want to emit, it's going to cost you more. And then you see the colour of people's money. Then ExxonMobil, has, you don't have to... That then the normal incentives of minimizing cost drive this whole thing. Now, what's happened is that because it is so easy to weaponize carbon pricing politically, again, this is all about how easy it is to bamboozle the public in many ways. Because it's so easy to run a negative campaign against carbon pricing, partly because it makes the costs transparent, the world has now built its entire strategy for reducing carbon emissions on, guess what, nice-sounding statements. Mm. Uh, And statements that are made by people holding offices who will not hold those offices when those statements are not, don't come true. Uh, You couldn't kind of make this up. <laughs> yeah, um, who are you talking about specifically there because you're talking are you talking about people in corporations or in super funds or are you talking about politicians because all I mean one of them, them all of all them of and them. they all okay. have a different they all have a different set of behavioral characteristics but none of them are perfect. The relationship between what people say and what they do well, gee, that's a bit of a problem for human beings all around. That's one of the arguments for saying, let's price things, because you know that the people who save on emissions will also save money and, and people will admire them for it and they will want to do more of it. And the whole thing is, as economists say, incentive compatible. But to take you, so firstly, you've got the politicians. Now, politicians say one thing and do the opposite within weeks if they want to make it more respectable within a few years. Paul Keating tells us that the GST, and I'm not being moralistic about this, Paul Keating tells us that the GST is necessary if we're to escape being a banana republic, and then he describes it as a giant new tax that will come and monster everyone in Australia. Tony Abbott tells us that if he was getting, if he was trying to uh, reduce carbon emissions, he wouldn't be pussyfooting around with silly regulation and, and, um, renewable subsidies. He'd be introducing carbon pricing until he's opposing carbon pricing and so on it goes. And, and Donald Trump will say different things in the morning and the afternoon. So that's the politicians. The, Managers will, managers are a kind of politician or they're, a, uh, you know, they're in a bureaucracy. There are lots, you, you've worked in a public bureaucracy, managers are in a private or a public bureaucracy and they put a large amount of store in reassuring people, having the, you know, giving people the feeling that the adults are in the room, everything's under control. Nothing could be further from the truth. The, the, transition to zero carbon, even the transition to about less than 40% of what we're emitting now has got lots of, gets more and more magic asterisks as -hmm. you go on, magic bits of technology we're going to invest, we're going to invent. Well, I'm not, I'm not being critical of anyone because that's the best we can do. 
uh, given that we've ditched carbon pricing, although that will come back. Uh, then at the bottom of all this, you've got people who are voters and they won't accept that it's their responsibility who they vote for. They love the idea that they're getting ripped off by these politicians who lie to them, but they don't ask themselves, why do the politicians lie to them? Because if they don't lie to them, they won't vote for them. If the politicians come out and say, well, actually, we all know that carbon pricing is the way to reduce emissions, uh, then they won't vote for those people. They'll vote for the people who say, oh, no, I'll do it all without carbon pricing. So it's a big house of cards. It's not its the wrong metaphor because it won't totally collapse, but there is something about it that lacks integrity and will end in tears to a substantial extent. Yeah, look, okay, I, I think I understand what your argument is with ESG and you want to get more uh, input from the members to really understand their, you know, where they're coming from, what they'd like to see, their understanding of the trade-offs. Just on carbon pricing, I think we might have to have that discussion another time or because there's a, there's a whole debate about carbon pricing. I mm. agree. You know, if, if we are going to do something about climate change, then, yeah, definitely carbon pricing is the best way to do it. Yeah. It's a major part of the solution. It's yeah. not the whole solution, but if that's what we're trying to do, it's a major part of the solution. The one reservation I'd have in for Australia, if, look, if you think about Australia, is it optimal for us to adopt it if other countries don't adopt it? Yeah, sure, and sure. Well, that's uh, clear, yeah, yeah. Right? Well, that's right. But we can then adopt a domestic carbon price. So that's a design. I look at that as a design feature. So Australian consumers should pay a carbon price, whether the exporters of Australian energy should pay a carbon price is something we can we can defer to the design stage, if you like. I agree that that's an issue. Yeah, but you would agree, wouldn't you, that Australian consumers should pay a carbon price? If we cut taxes elsewhere. But that's you're imposing a an ideological or a yeah, an ideological preference. I mean, I'm just trying to address carbon prices. Yes, I suppose I am. Uh, so, yeah. so I, you know, I've got my preferences. I'd like to use the yeah. revenue to do X, Y, and Z, but I'm not going to say, mm. oh, well, I don't want to do it if you can't, if I can't use the money in the way that I want. Yeah, yeah. But conceptually, I agree that, yeah, the, the, the best way to tackle climate change is via a, a carbon price. I wouldn't want to impose it and, and make our industries worse yeah. off and you're arguing that yeah. yeah the the way to to stop that or that leakage whatever they call it when the industries go to other countries is by you yeah, having yeah. an exemption of some kind so yeah. there's some design issues there that's that, right. okay, that's right. yeah. i mean i just don't want to that, that is a a genuine issue that needs to be sorted out by the international community it, you can make a pretty reasonable attempt to do so at the at the unilateral level if you have to it's not as good as a multilateral solution but that's a separate issue. Mm, okay. I didn't mean to distract us from the, the discussion of ESG because I'm, I'm interested in what this mechanism is. You're talking about a, what is it, a, a group or a, a sample or a Yeah, a yeah, it's a sample. Of so think, of a, think yeah. of a jury and you sample from your membership in such a way that it is representative of the membership. So you look at the age profile, some demographics, and then you try and produce some replication of that in this otherwise random sample. Now, I think that the what that group can do is it can become aware on behalf of the members of these dilemmas. And they're very deep dilemmas because you really get a governance problem. Any mug can say, oh, we're investing in all these high emissions companies in which every time we turn up to the AGM, and we say they should lower their emissions. <laughs> mm -hmm. But that's not serious. So if you want to go in this more bona fide direction, you ra it raises important governance questions. It raises questions about communicating to your members that you really are doing your best. So that's one way to involve the members. I also think that at the moment what we have is we have a thing called the sole purpose test, which it makes a lot of sense, which is to say you get various concessions to invest in super, and even if you don't, we force you to invest in 
these pension funds or superannuation funds. So we don't want you to invest in a holiday home where you'll get some benefit from this in your investment fund. It has to be for the sole purpose of your retirement. But but a lot of people don't mind the idea of, they. in fact, I'll go further, they like the idea that they will be investing in their community, they'll be investing in things that will be good for their kids and so on. So one thing that a fund might do in this model, according to me, and it would actually require some change in the legislation, but one thing that a fund might do is you might, the ESG folks might take to this council, they might the, the ESG governors, the people running the ESG might say, look, this is really very hard and we're not sure if this is achieving much, uh, but we do think that there are a whole lot of ways we can spend money and it may not be, it may not get us commercial returns, but we're prepared to put 1% of your portfolio into some funds that will improve the community for your children and your grandchildren. Our calculations are this won't reduce your returns by more than this amount, but it needs to be something that you want to do. Yeah. I think that would be very healthy and it would introduce a different kind of collective institution and collective decision-making into our world and and our use of capital. Yeah, I think that's uh, that sounds like a, a reasonable idea. And what was the reception like at that conference? Uh, I've been invited to, I mean, I didn't go to that last point, but I've been invited back to talk to CEOs about it. These were just, okay. so, so there was a lot of enthusiasm because a lot of these, in fact, I don't think there were any, there's virtually no managers of ESG who aren't sitting around really quite perturbed by the fact that they're sort of putting on a show for the public. And when they when they read the literature and they think about what they're doing, they're not at all sure that this is a great idea. And it's growing bureaucracy in all directions. There are stand, mm-hmm. international standards of what you report. It's hard graft to connect up profit-seeking with community development. It's a worthwhile objective. and We don't understand it very well conceptually, but what's happening is it's being driven politically and that's kind of just turning into a, for, at least from my observation, into a, into a pretty unhelpful set of bureaucratic instincts set up by standards bodies, accounting bodies. Everyone's producing these reports and I think the agenda is, I'm not poo-pooing it, it'd be easy to take the a fairly standard sort of public choice critique of this and say it's all rubbish. I think it's clear that there are good things about it, but then we have to take it seriously. And it should at least take the public choice criticism of it seriously enough to do the best job of this that it can. Okay, and it's about introducing some economic logic into uh, no, not the necessarily ESG discussion. No, well, I would say it's about a different mode of governance. Instead of a mode of governance which has a bunch of consumers and then a bunch of people who are managing a system and marketing to the consumers, you actually say to the consumers, "These are difficult questions. We want to." invest in a random sample of you guys to help us run this agenda because that's A, going to be useful, B, it's going to give what we do real legitimacy. We won't be putting on a show for you. We will be trying to do what it is that you want us to do. Yeah. And and all of our systems default back to what I call the puppet show. And I showed them, I don't know whether you've seen, many people have seen the film Sound of Music in which Julie Andrews and the kids put on a puppet show for Captain Von Trapp and his girlfriend at the time. And I say, the public are out here, Captain Von Trapp and the and, and the, your members are out here. Um, ESG is the puppet show and you're up here, Julie Andrews and the kids, putting on a show, and you actually know that there's a fair bit of unreality to this show. Get the get the audience behind, show them what you're doing, and ask them what they want. 
Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Uh, very good. The, uh, yeah, the Baroness, uh, was his girlfriend at the time, if I remember. The, and the, Baroness, gets, yeah, the, the Baroness yeah. gets, sh- gets shafted. It, it wouldn't be a nice role to have as the Baroness because the Baroness has to be kind of pretty gold-digging, vacuous, easily dispatched by the um, the sweet, innocent Julie Andrews, Maria von oh, yes. Trapp, yes. who... The real Maria von Trapp looks extraordinarily like my aunt, I can do, who was Viennese right. as well. So that is a remarkable fact for you. Okay, we'll take a short break here for a word from our sponsor. If you need to crunch the numbers, then get in touch with Adept Economics. We offer you frank and fearless economic analysis and advice. We can help you with funding submissions, cost-benefit analysis studies, and economic modelling of all sorts. Our head office is in Brisbane, Australia, but we work all over the world. You can get in touch via our website, www.adepteconomics.com.au. We'd love to hear from you. Now back to the show. Nicholas, you wrote a post during the pandemic, didn't you, on your thoughts on liberty and because uh, there was a whole debate about lockdowns and masks and, yep. and you had a yep. rather interesting perspective on it. So would you be able to just take us through that, please? Then we might talk about what it all means for policy. Yeah. So during the COVID period, everybody got themselves very worked up about compulsions, uh, impositions by government, and they were lockdowns, vaccine mandates, mask mandates. And it's entirely appropriate that people talk about those things and debate those things and have different views about those things and also have passionately different views about those things. That's um, that's just fine and dandy. But imagine that we were in London during the Blitz and we had those debates about whether the government should impose a blackout so that the Luftwaffe couldn't bomb us. We would all understand that it was consistent with our liberty to impose those constraints. And likewise, if there is absolute chaos, that it is consistent with restoring liberty and actually to getting some liberty to impose martial law, for instance. So everything is a matter of context. Now, is that me not caring about people's liberties under these particular measures? Well, As I wrote in the blog post, I'm the only person I know who's got a record going back 40 years of actually taking this subject seriously, but I took it seriously in a rather different way. I didn't say, oh, I'm on the side of, I'm always going to be sort of leaning towards liberty rather than coercion. What I said was, what are the things about our constitution that are most would be most would be the first things that an authoritarian trying to take control of government or deny basic democratic values what are the first things where would they head uh what are the weaknesses in our constitution that would help them out and so when john button who i worked for senator john button in 1981 he was in opposition And I wrote out, with the help of the clerk of the Senate, Harry Evans, I wrote out a bill, a private member's bill, on the subject of parliamentary privilege, because at the time then, and it is still the case now, the members of either house, either our House of Representatives or our Senate, can meet as a privileges committee, and they can decide according to whatever procedures they wish to adopt, to put someone in jail for contempt of parliament, including one of their own members, as two journalists were put in jail in Australia in the 1950s. And so this private member's bill actually picked up some old work of, from memory, Owen Dixon, who was who became the Chief Justice, but I think this was when he was uh, Attorney General, if he was Attorney General. I think he was. And it, it started with uh, a private member's bill he wrote, and we went over it and, 
and uh, made it to our own satisfaction. And so all that Parliament could do was to hold initial hearings and then to present the case to a magistrate, to an independent magistrate, saying this person is guilty of contempt of Parliament and uh, over to you. Now, that is a much safer way to deal with this matter and a way that is consistent with our liberties taken seriously. And it's quite a topical thing because, as you may recall, the House of Commons Privileges Committee has just uh, met and considered the routinely egregious behaviour of its former Prime Minister, uh, Boris Johnson, and decided that he would be suspended for 90 days. Now, I think suspending Boris Johnson from the House of Commons for 90 days, I happen to think that's a great idea. I might make it longer. (laughs) Uh, But it's not, it's a disastrous idea that it should be their decision because they're politicians. And it's very easy to imagine a situation where that, in fact, it's hard to imagine an institution more ripe to be abused when people without any respect for the traditions and the conventions within which those systems operate whenever they come along. So so that's an introduction to this idea of liberty as being fundamentally about the legitimacy of government and then secondarily about these particular decisions that get made. Right. Just uh, before we go on, Nicholas. it... Which jurisdiction were those? Did you say two journalists were jailed by a... Commonwealth. Commonwealth. Commonwealth, um, 1956, thereabouts, maybe 1954. The House of Representatives took umbrage at these journalists. You can look it up. I can't remember the exact details, but the journalist reported a private discussion or something. It was just the sort of thing that's pretty, pretty standard practice now. Off they went, cooled their heels in Goulburn Jail for a week or so, and they they could be detained indefinitely. There's nothing in our constitution or in the rules of the House of Representatives that prevents the House of Representatives from locking up anyone for any length of time in jail. Now, we now have a more activist high court that would probably get itself involved and say this is not consistent with the spirit of the Australian constitution, but that's what happened. Mm-hmm. And nobody, well, yeah. yeah. And then, and then what happened is, Button released this thing to the public. hadn't It was a bit of a disaster because he hadn't read it very carefully, and I tried to take him through it, but he was kind of busy or tired or something. And Michelle Grattan started asking him quite detailed questions about the bill, and he didn't know what was in it, which was a little <laughs> embarrassing. Then his party turned on him, and people walked past him in the corridors saying what has got into you? Why would you want to do this? And he wasn't too sure himself. It was really all my idea. And, it, you know, (laughs) another idea of mine, and no one knows who had it, you know? Yeah. So I just want to understand what you're you're arguing. You're arguing that well, okay, so liberty, yeah, you're you're taking it seriously. You're interested in the constitutional framework or the or, or the all the rules we have in place that can affect liberty before we get into one of these situations like the pandemic. And uh, I'm just trying to understand what you what you're arguing. You you want to make sure that we've got the right mechanisms or the right infrastructure in place so that we make the right decisions. Or, or what are you well, what are you arguing exactly? Well. I'm arguing that if you're serious about liberty, you accept a few things. You accept that governments need, in the final analysis, to have quite draconian powers if we're at war and so on. So that puts the focus on safeguards and it also puts the focus on the importance of legitimacy. In the the post that I did during COVID, I said I would have thought that it would be a good idea during COVID if you want to introduce these emergency measures, have us, and we talk about this a lot now, it's one of my, one of the things I go on about, which is you could have a a jury, a body of randomly selected citizens who are there, who are paid to turn up every week and to look at what's going on and the government can't do things that it objects to. 
I think that would have protected a lot of governments and would have protected us from a lot of the culture war that we saw because these kinds of things need to reflect a sense of legitimacy and they need to reflect the confidence of people that they're doing what they think is the right things and for the right reasons. Uh, and there was a great, you know, the, the the activism against mask mandates, for instance, was because I regard mask mandates as the least intrusive kind of intervention you could have. And I would be perfect. I think it would be good if we had mask mandates on public transport properly enforced even now. And again, that's a, you know, a virus is a public is a public good is a, is an externality these are these are difficult questions and so you want to find a way to navigate them with proper community involvement if we simply have governments and the usual sort of activism against those governments it becomes very easy to turn it into a kind of standard issue culture war which is what we saw more in the united states than here but certainly it's become that way here to a substantial extent. Yeah. Okay. So there are a few things I want to comment on there. So you're right yep. about government. I mean, it needs the the ability to to at times do things that, you know, do constrain liberties. There's no doubt about that. Government has the monopoly on violence, as they yep. say. Yeah. Uh, I agree with you there. Now, this point about, yeah, getting the citizens involved, the citizens' jury it would have been good to have done it before we got into the pandemic. Absolutely. The problem is because of all of the fear, then the citizens' jury might end up just supporting a lot of these, these policies. Well, I mean, I mean, the concern I would have is that a lot of these policies were driven by fear and, yeah. uh, you know, and which to a, to an extent, I mean, to some extent was rational, you know, yeah. for some people, for sure. I mean, it was certainly a serious uh, virus. But the governments, they would argue that they were polling people. Like they were, like Dan Andrews and Anastasia Pelagie, they were relying on opinion polling and that was driving a lot of their policy making. So they would argue they had that legit legitimacy. I, yeah. I mean, well, I make a distinction, as I think you might know, between the opinion of the people for which I don't have a high regard and the considered opinion of yes. the people which, for which I do have a high regard. So, and certainly the considered opinion of the people. I think the considered opinion of the people would have looked very like the opinion of the people early on. But if it was really fairly clear that a lot of this was the product of project fear, then there would be people in a citizen jury that would, you know, the citizen jury would have powers to ask questions, to call witnesses, all that kind of stuff. And that's, we, we spoke about this in the previous podcast we did on a different subject, the structure we have is a government that is constantly performing for the satisfaction of its consumers, i.e. the voters. This is what corporations do. And what we need to do is to find mechanisms for bringing ordinary people, these people who we accept are the legitimate source of democratic government, to bring them into the process and to inform them as best we can and then ask them to deliberate and then give the considered opinion of the people an important role in this. And it isn't just that I think it would lead to better decisions. It would lead to a great, it, it does lead when you see it being done to a tremendously less hostile, fearful environment. The situation we were in we had to make decisions. I don't even want to defend lockdowns. I don't want to attack them either. They were difficult decisions. You could see that the pie could see, and I'm make, you know, you might have seen something different, and we'll never know who's right. But I think I could see politicians doing their best. That's a very important thing to cultivate during a crisis, and this sort of mechanism does that. Yeah. Look, uh, I, I'm not going to criticize them for i mean i think they did they took it seriously i think they were trying to do their best i agree there i just think there's a good case to be made that there was an overreaction and yeah. it was because yeah. of the the amount of fear and they're making policy based on the fear at the time now pre-pandemic hadn't didn't we have all of these plans for what we we would do yeah. during the pandemic and it didn't half involve half of the things that 
That's right. That we ended up doing. So we, That's right. we, when we were looking at it rationally and the uh, we, we had a different idea of what we, we could do, but then because of the maybe there aren't enough checks and balances or, or constraints, there's not enough, uh, there wasn't enough time to, to actually properly consider these these policies. Like what we had in Queensland here, we mm. had the government, it had a public health act that it introduced in 2005 and, you know, it was, it, it was thinking, oh, we may need something like this in case there is an emergency, a, yeah. a pandemic. Uh, but then when we get to the actual pandemic, they, they're starting to worry about it all and they, they're thinking, oh, my God, we actually may not have all the powers we need to deal with this. And, and so they rush through this bill to give Jeanette Young, the chief health officer at the time, all of these extra powers so she can direct individual citizens to isolate and impose lockdowns, et cetera. And, I mean, one of the problems we've got here in Queensland, and this is, and this is why I am attracted to your idea of looking at the the institutions, the whatever you want to call it, the uh, the policy architecture. I like that as a concept because one of the problems we've got here in Queensland is we don't have an an upper house which would provide some yeah. friction. Maybe it's not enough because other states have upper houses and that didn't stop. Um, yeah, it wouldn't do a lot of these policies. Yeah, right. but yeah, and and one thing I found is that the, the, our mechanisms weren't working. There wasn't enough scrutiny. I mean, I spoke at a parliamentary committee here in Queensland in early 2021 and I was trying to make the case that I I thought that some of the restrictions were excessive and we should look at it, this as a cost-benefit framework. But yeah. the only politician who actually was sympathetic was the One Nation MP, but both yeah. Labor and the coalition or the LNP up here, well, they were sort of, you know, not not wanting to question anything. There was sort of a a, a consensus view. And, I mean, I don't mind if they come to that um, legitimately, but I, I just thought there should have been more questioning in the in the parliament. But everyone just sort of said, oh, we're just going to, yeah, the, the normal mechanisms or what we would hope would occur in a democracy w- just didn't work. There wasn't enough contestability or there wasn't enough considered development of policy. Well, I completely agree with you, but I think I don't think it's particularly easy to bring that about now because if you look at the life of a politician, certainly a politician in a major party, the major parties are kind of like battleships, manoeuvring around, getting a position on a thing, circulating their talking points, and then enforcing rigid party discipline. And when an important issue comes along that people are very emotional about, the press is doing the same thing. The press is trying to maximise clicks, report excitement. If you get up in the house and you make a, a you know, you make a speech which isn't entirely in support of your own party and call for, you know, and you discuss the issues, well, you're not going to get any benefits in your own party for that. The press will go through it and pick out bits of your what you've just said to amp them up and then they'll stick a microphone in front of the party leader's face and say, well, do you agree with what your backbencher said about what's going on in Logan? This is just a disastrous environment in which to get high-level discussion. And that's, again, why I'm arguing that actually people still like discussion, (laughs) not on our airwaves, But in the right forums, you bring them together and they speak to each other civilly and they try to see each other's point of view and they try to compromise and and explore their way to a common view. Now, that's almost totally absent from our politics. I think it's terrific that the Teals have done as well as they have in federal parliament because it has set the clock back a bit. (laughs) I know we're supposed to think of setting the clock back as a bad thing, but the way the Teals do electoral politics is a bit more like the way ba- I was saying this to a Teal the other day, uh, one of the members of parliament. It's a bit more like backbenchers were 35 years ago. You know, they can talk about their own situation, their own concerns. Uh, they're not completely preoccupied with the talking points of their party and so on. But if we want really proper deliberation, we we better try and think about how we, I was going to say route around Parliament. Well, Parliament has the power, but it's not going to 
the way we the way our society runs at the moment, there's nothing much you can do to make that discussion a search for the truth. It's a search for advantage. And so we have to try to think how do we build institutions that cover for that, that allow discussion to take place, allow these processes to take place without imagining that that's going to happen in Parliament. I was just going to ask, I mean, like you mentioned the Teals and, uh, yeah, they're, I mean, they've really shaken things up, that's for sure. Do we need more, you know, more representation from different groups? Could proportional representation help with that? Something yeah, like- it might be able to help with that. I think it may have helped mm. in something a bit like proportional representation in New Zealand. I think the, I mean, the worst, the most toxic politics I know of is in our two historical great and powerful friends, Great Britain and the United States, both have first passed the post voting. I was going to say both have two major parties. Well, that is true in the United Kingdom, but they also have a an outrider, the Liberal Democrats. But uh, those have provided very toxic political environments and the extent to which we've injected other elements, I think, has been good. And in fact, you may recall, well, you will recall what I call the randos in the Senate, people like Ricky Muir, who got into the Senate, and you could imagine it almost like a randomising process. You just throw four or five random people in who happen to get the benefit of tiny little preference margins. Well, I thought that was actually a very good illustration. of Like, it didn't make much sense on paper, but the people who ended up in the Senate listened to the debate and tried to come up with the right answer. Now, that would never do inside a political party. You're not in Parliament to try and work out who's winning the debate and where the answers are. You're there to add one uh, one vote to your party, and that's all decided by the party structures. They're completely disastrous. Mm. Yeah, I think the Senate does its structure in the way that, yeah, the, because it's got it's not just, uh, you know, it's dominated by one party. That leads to yeah. arguably better outcomes. And I think yeah. the Housing Australia Future Fund, I think that getting held up, I think that was a good idea because that didn't doesn't seem to make much sense as, as a policy. I know the Greens are getting <laughs> bashed over the head yeah. over that, but yeah. I think their stance was perfectly hmm. uh, acceptable. I don't think you'd be as keen on their proposal for rent no, control. No, I'm not keen on their proposal, but I think them actually yeah. teaming up yeah. in the so-called axis of evil with the coalition was yeah. Uh, yeah. was very yeah. good. So yeah, exactly. exactly. The reasons they exactly. opposed it was sensible. I don't agree with what they're proposing instead. Yes. But I, th- I was just saying that's a good illustration of the Senate federally working. And yes, you know, I agree. Yeah, I like your how the way you're thinking about this. We've got to get the, the right frameworks in place and so when we get into the the crisis we're not just yeah we've got a a proper way to to deal with it what i was wondering is whether we decide before a crisis so outside of a pandemic these are the thresholds if we exceed this threshold if this virus looks like it's of this seriousness we're willing to accept these restrictions like we decide all of that prior to the pandemic so when we get into it yeah, we're not panicking and we're not imposing restrictions that arguably aren't justifiable. So I'm wondering if we should work all of that out and then sort of have the debate there. And you could have your citizens' jury, you could have a more considered process rather than it just being decided all in a, a panic. You know, there's there's a case for trying to show what foresight you can, but remember all of our plans were predicated. I mean, this is an extraordinary thing that all of our plans were predicated on the idea that this pandemic would be a flu, and it wasn't a flu, and yet all of our our entire official medical establishment, that is the people like Brendan Murphy, Paul Kelly, these are the official Commonwealth medical officers and state medical officers, they didn't bat an eyelid. They didn't say... Uh, right, we need to rethink this. That happened actually the first, as I believe, the first medical establishment, and by medical establishment, I don't mean doctors, I'm general in general, I mean the officers of the government that are there to provide the government with medical advice. The first 
country that did this was the New Zealand medical establishment, and they did a pretty good job. For, after a couple of months, they said, hang on, this is not a flu. We need to rethink this, and that's what they did. That We were incredibly inflexible, not adaptive, not... Uh, and, and a lot of these guys were thinking of their role as making rules for the community rather than helping the community think through the problems. So I would put more effort into that, but we're still drifting into this question of how do you manage a crisis? And what I'm saying is that crises will be well or badly managed and that it's an important thing to think about. But every time, I suppose you are doing something which I'm kind of arguing we should do, which is that every time this sort of thing happens, we should be asking ourselves questions on two levels. What do we do now and what sorts of institutions should we have to do this thing well? And there we probably should wrap up because we've gone on for a fair while. But one of the things that just gobsmacks me is in the United States, 51 people, all the governors and the president have a pardon power. Now, maybe some of the states have done to the pardon power what I wanted to do to parliamentary privilege and to contempt of parliament. But by and large, the president simply decides, as Boris Johnson decided regarding various knighthoods and so on, that that it's simply an exercise of executive power to give someone a pardon. And so much so that there is serious discussion about whether Donald Trump can pardon himself in jail, because there's certainly a precedent for him campaigning in jail. That was done in World War I when Mr. Dobbs was in jail and picked up something like 3% of the vote from jail. He was in jail for breach of the Espionage Act, the same act that Julian Assange is um, uh, arraigned under or being pursued under. Now, I don't know, I am unaware of a single Democratic politician who says, by the way, we've got to get rid of the presidential pardon power, or if you don't want to get rid of it, we have to subject it to proper due process. We are no longer in the 18th century. And nobody does this. Mm -hmm. And I find that completely extraordinary. So there you are. I won't say another word about it in protest. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, Nicholas, thanks again for a uh, fantastic policy provocation. That one was particularly provoking. Uh, so, uh, yes, uh, gave me a lot to to think about and, uh, yeah, reflecting on that period we've, we've been through and, uh, yes, uh, lots to think about for policy. So thanks again. Really enjoyed that one. Thanks, Gene. Righto, thanks for listening to this episode of Economics Explored. If you have any questions, comments or suggestions, please get in touch. I'd love to hear from you. You can send me an email via contact at economicsexplored.com or a voicemail via SpeakPipe. You can find the link in the show notes. If you've enjoyed the show, I'd be grateful if you could tell anyone you think would be interested about it. Word of mouth is one of the main ways that people learn about the show. Finally, if your podcasting app lets you, then please write a review and leave a rating. Thanks for listening. I hope you can join me again next week. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. For more content like this, or to begin your own podcasting journey, head on over to obsidian-productions.com.